Hey, how you doing? Assalamu alaikum. Peace. It's Imran here. Uh, yeah, those are chickens you can hear in the background. Uh, if you are listening to the last episode, you'll know right now, on a break in Amsterdam, in Amsterdam Noord, which means north, uh, on an organic uh, dairy farm. Uh, Alhamdulillah, this is lovely. So I've been finishing off Gabo Mate's book, um, in the realm of hungry ghosts, close encounters with addiction. And I've reached a point where he's self-analyzing. If you remember, Dr. Gabo Mate is a physician in his 50s stroke 60s. He's been working with, uh, with addicts, people who are severely addicted in Vancouver, Canada, and has been doing for, for many, many decades. But he is not... Um, He's not oblivious to his own shortcomings, or maybe he wouldn't say shortcomings. Maybe he would say his own condition. And honestly, I've just read this chapter or these few pages in the book, and it immediately struck me. It resonated with me, and I think they will resonate with you. So this is very short. This is a consider this bonus material for the for the series, and um, and yeah, here's a here's a short extract from Gabo Mate's book in the realm of hungry ghosts. If I examine my addictive behaviors without judgment and ask why, in the spirit of compassionate curiosity, what do I find? More to the point, whom do I find? What is the truth of me? Is it that I am a respected 30-year veteran of medical practice, spouse and parent, counsellor, public speaker, activist and author? What about the anxious, insecure man who has often felt empty and incomplete and has looked to the outside to ally some insatiable hunger? As fellow addict and author Stephen Reed said during our conversation in the cafeteria of the William Head Penitentiary, makes my teeth hurt the work of pulling back from all those outside things and looking inside myself. In my case, the unconscious tension literally made my teeth hurt so forcefully that I ground my teeth at night since childhood that by the end of my fifth decade, most of them were whittled stubs with the pulp exposed. Along with my positive qualities, intellectual confidence, strengths, passions and commitments, there's always lurked near the very core of me a churning anxiety. Had I been able to be honest with myself and had I been prepared to accept vulnerability, I would have declared at many stages of my life, I'm scared. I'm so very scared. My anxiety clothes itself in concerns about body image or financial security doubts regarding lovability or the ability to love, and the existential pessimism about life's meaning and purpose. Or on the other hand, it manifests itself as grandiosity and the need to be admired, to be seen as special. At bottom, it is nameless and formless. I feel sure it was forged in my chest cavity somewhere between my lungs and heart long before I knew the names of things. Do I have reasons to be anxious? By its very nature, chronic anxiety has nothing to do with reasons. 
First it springs into being, and much later, once we develop the ability to think, it recruits thoughts and explanations to serve it. Healthy anxiety is felt in the face of danger, like the fear a gazelle might experience in the presence of a hungry lion, or that of a small child when its parents are not in sight. No, chronic anxiety is rooted in the experience of the moment. It precedes thought. We may believe we're anxious about this or that, body image, the state of the world, relationship issues, the weather. But no matter what story we weave around it, the anxiety just is. Like addiction, anxiety always finds a target, but exists independently of its targets. Only when we become aware of it does it wrap itself in identifiable colors. More often we repress it, bury it under ideas, identifications, deeds, beliefs and relationships. We build above it a mound of activities and attributes that we mistake for our true selves. We then expend our energies trying to convince the world that our self-made fiction is reality. As genuine as our strengths and achievements may be, they cannot but feel hollow until we acknowledge the anxiety they cover up. Incompleteness is the baseline state of the addict. The addict believes, either with full awareness or unconsciously, that he is not enough. As he is, he is inadequate to face life's demands or to present an acceptable face to the world. He is unable to tolerate his own emotions without artificial supports. He must escape the painful experience of the void within through any activity that fills his mind with even temporary purpose, be it work, gambling, shopping, eating, or sexual seeking. In my first book, Scattered Minds, I depicted this perennial psychic hunger. The British psychiatrist R.D. Lang wrote somewhere that there are three things human beings are afraid of death, other people, and their own minds. Terrified of my mind, I had always dreaded to spend a moment alone with it. There always had to be a book in my pocket as an emergency kit in case I was ever trapped waiting anywhere, even for one minute, be it a bank lineup or a supermarket checkout counter. I was forever throwing my mind scraps to feed on, as to a ferocious and malevolent beast that would devour me the moment it was not chewing on something else. At that time, I ascribed that state of perpetual dissatisfaction to attention deficit disorder. Although a salient mental feature of ADT, the drive to escape the moment is a common, nearly universal human characteristic. In the addicted brain, it is magnified to the point of desperation. It becomes the overriding force in directing choices and behavior. But I don't feel any desperation, some may say. I just love whatever I'm doing so much that I never want to stop. Workaholics are prone to think that way, and I used to. Where is all this pain and grief I'm supposed to feel in order to heal, I once challenged a therapist. Try as I may, I can't force myself to feel anything. Feelings either come or they don't. 
I was so busy stimulating and soothing myself with ceaseless activity, working overtime to keep my brain spinning and gorging it with mind candy that I didn't even have a small gap for any feeling to seep through. My workaholism and compact disc shopping have been only the most consistent forms of escape my mind chooses when it's uncomfortable. There have been other behaviours just as compulsive and just as impulsive. I see now that the underlying anxiety and sense of emptiness have been pervasive. Emotionally, they take the shape of chronic, low-grade depression and irritability. On the thought level, they manifest as cynicism, the negative side of healthy scepticism and independent thinking I've always valued. Behaviorally, they mask themselves as hypomanic energy or as lethargy, as a constant hankering for activity or for oblivion. When the ordinary everyday escape mechanisms fail to satisfy, I plunge myself overtly into addictive patterns. If I had greater pain and fewer resources, if I had been less fortunate in the circumstances of my nurturing environment, I might well have been impelled to turn to drugs. Compassionate curiosity directed towards the self leads to the truth of things. Once I see my anxiety and recognize it for what it is, the need to escape dwindles. It is clear to me that the sense of threat and fear of abandonment that make up my anxiety were, in my case, programmed in the Budapest ghetto in 1944. Why attempt to escape some old brain pattern laid down when I was frightened as an infant during a terrible time in history? It's there, and the circuits in which its wordless stories are embedded are indelibly a part of my brain. It doesn't need to go away. Indeed, it won't go away, not completely but I can transform my relationship to it, become more intimately related to it. I can even gain some mastery over it, which means noticing it without allowing it to control my moods or behaviours. Similarly, I don't have to take on the impossible task of erasing the addictive impulses that arose from early acquired brain patterns. Essential to any such transformations is a letting go of judgement and self-condemnation. Psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Anthony Storr has written about the value of allowing buried emotions to emerge without fear. When a person is encouraged to get in touch with and experience his deepest feelings, in the secure knowledge that he will not be rejected, criticised, nor expected to be different, some kind of rearrangement or sorting out process often occurs within the mind which brings with it a sense of peace, a sense that the depths of the well of truth have really been reached. What is the first step to take when self-compassion allows the truth to emerge? Inevitably, it's the step one taught by Alcoholics Anonymous and others 12-step programs. 12-step methods are not for everyone, and they may not be the only route out of addiction but the principles on which they are based are common to any successful program of recovery. We must admit we are powerless over alcohol. That our lives had become unmanageable is the classic AA formulation. Mindful of the fundamental similarity of all addictions, one can broaden that to say, I admit I am powerless over my addiction process. 
That is, I fully acknowledge that my cravings and behaviours have been out of control and that my inability to regulate them has led to dysfunction and chaos in important areas of my life. I no longer deny their impact on myself or my co-workers or my loved ones and I admit my failure to confront them honestly and consistently. I have been reluctant to take this step until recently. Despite the fact that I have not had a problem admitting or describing my addictive tendencies either in private or in public. The difficulty has been threefold. First, since I pride myself on a strong intellect, I've resisted accepting that I'm powerless over any mental process. On the contrary, it is in the nature of the ego to turn anything to its advantage. Even the public discourse of my addictive patterns has served to reassure me of my sincerity and honesty and courage. Audiences greet such self-disclosure with nods, appreciative smiles and applause. But real courage does not lie in speaking about addiction. It resides in actively doing something about it. And that, until very recently, I have not been prepared to take on. Second, in focusing on the most visible compulsive behaviours such as CD shopping, book binging or workaholism, I could still permit myself to ignore how addictive patterns have permeated much of my functioning. Narrowing it down to a few problematic issues has allowed me to deny that the addiction process shows up in numerous aspects of my daily existence. There have been many things I do well and many tasks I accomplish, I could assure myself. So there is no cause for me to admit a loss of control. In other words, I have not wanted to accept that at times my life is made unmanageable by my own behaviours. In the absence of compassionate curiosity, any such admission brings up too much shame. Finally, Whenever I have felt wooden or alienated in the intimate areas of my life, I've seen myself as deprived rather than owning the reality that I create the sense of deprivation internally. For example, I have blamed my wife, Ray, for not satisfying my expectations instead of taking responsibility for the burdens I impose on our relationship through poor self-regulation and lack of differentiation i.e. my capacity to hold on to a sense of self while interacting with Ray and others. That leaves me free to use the addictions for self-soothing and to justify doing so by citing my unmet needs. In other words, the consequences of my own willful refusal to be a mature, self-regulating adult become my rationale for pursuing addictive behaviours. As I write about this, the image of a whirling puppy snapping at its own tail comes to mind. There is no moving forward without breaking through the wall of denial, or in the case of such an obstinate and slippery mind as mine, breaking through several walls whose existence I do not even want to acknowledge.
You know, it's kind of ironic that I wasn't meant to be doing anything on this holiday. But as soon as I had nothing to do, I decided to record an extract from the book. Yeah, the irony is not lost on me. And actually, it confirms what Dr. Gabor is saying. A mind which is not totally at peace within itself will look for distractions. I'm wondering whether you recognize yourself in anything that he was saying. Because I saw a lot of myself in, in, in what he was describing. The recovery from addiction is also really interesting. In the final chapter of the book, he talks about step two of the 12-step recovery program. And step two is essentially la ilaha illallah. Well, not exactly, but step two is the recognition, the individual must recognize that there is a higher power than them. That's step two of the recovery program. It's a recognition that to serve a higher power and a higher purpose is the root out of destructive behavior, the root out of addiction. As Muslims, this shouldn't be anything surprising to us. We were built, we were created for la ilaha illallah. So the question then arises that if you do not have peace in your life, or whether at moments you do not have peace, is it because we are not being true to la ilaha illallah? There is no deity worthy of worship except Allah. It's what we express is what makes us Muslim. The question is, do we live by it? And that's something to consider. Okay, I think we've spoken in detail about addiction. And uh, I think now's a good time to address a closely related subject. And that's of resilience. Elias and I had a chance to sit down and actually talk about what resilience is, how it manifests, why some people are more resilient than others, whether or not you can cultivate resilience in yourself and in your community, and why resilience is important in, in order to live a full life. If you do have any comments or suggestions or feedback, or if you want to take part with a personal story or you are an expert in the field, please email me, divorcedmuslimdad, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram DMs at M-O-I-A-Z-A-M. As always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.